If you have your Bibles, please join me in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And as uh, we don't have our, our screens available to us, I'll, I'll try to make sure I repeat the, the points if you're filling out the notes in the outline. Also, if, you're, uh, if your road didn't uh, pass the attendance binders, we'd like to ask you to do that. Again, that just helps us be able to stay in touch with you and, and uh, know how we can, uh, there's a few other op boxes you can check to uh, find out if there's ways we can minister to you or come alongside you. Matthew chapter 11, the title of today's message is Kingdom Questions. It wasn't so much the smell that got to him. It wasn't the uncomfortable place to sleep at night. He was used to that. He wandered the deserts and slept in many strange places. It wasn't even the food. He had subsisted on locusts and honey for many years. It was the isolation. It was the loneliness. It was being cut off from the one whom he'd been called to proclaim. And now John the Baptist sat in prison and he began to question. He began to doubt. He began to wonder if this one who he had been called to proclaim was truly who he said he was. He was sure he had gotten his calling from God, a, a prophet, to be the forerunner of the Messiah, to point to this one, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He baptized, he preached, and it all pointed to this man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And yet now, he began to wonder. At one point, he was so sure but th this man was not overthrowing governments. He wasn't establishing kingdoms. He, he wasn't seating, seated upon David's throne. He wasn't vanquishing enemies. And John began to doubt. In John chapter 11, we find the prophet, the famous prophet John, in prison. Jesus' cousin, who preached and baptized as a polarizing figure, as one whom many questioned his sanity, certainly questioned his message. In fact, as he boldly got in people's face, it eventually landed him in prison. He called Herod out one day for having his brother murdered so he could marry his brother's wife. And John said, that's, that's flat out wrong. And that's why he was here sitting in this cell east of the Dead Sea wondering whether Jesus was truly who he thought he was. Look at verse 2. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, 
or shall we look for another? These are profound words. This is a, this is a serious question. John the Baptist truly had been the forerunner. He was the prophet, the one who announced the coming of the Messiah, and that the Messiah was his cousin, Jesus. And now, he's doubting to the point where his disciples, who had stopped and visited him, he said, I, I, I want to I send you back to Jesus with some questions. I want you to ask him, is he for real, the Messiah? Or should we keep looking? <clears throat> You're filling out the notes that number one is that followers of Jesus are not immune from doubt, discouragement, and depression. <clears throat> followers of Jesus are not immune from doubt, discouragement, and depression. What caused the doubt and the prophet, the one who we think should know better? Certainly his circumstances, his isolation in prison, being separate from seeing what Jesus was doing live and in person. More than his circumstances, his exhaustion. He had lived, uh, just he'd gone full out in ministry. He'd lived out in the wilderness and subsisted on Bugs, honey, whatever he could find. And had lived a, lived a, a high-intensity ministry and had, had received a lot of persecution. And now he was here in prison. He was isolated. He was alone. He was exhausted. And furthermore, he had unmet expectations. In the Greek, when that verse tells us that he asked his disciples if he should... We should be looking for someone else. This Greek expression is an emphatic position. The specific term emphasizes another of a different kind. It's not just should we be looking for another person, but should we be looking for someone completely different? Because you're not who I expected. They wanted someone who was going to wipe out the Roman invaders, the Roman occupiers. And they were not getting that. John began to question. D.A. Carson asks, It was all right to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons and still storms and preach righteousness and announce the kingdom, but where was the judgment? Had the corruptions and cruelties of Caesar been abruptly shut down? Had the hypocritical temple leaders been banished? Had the disgusting corruptions of Herod Antipas been confronted? Why was he, John the Baptist, languishing in the stifling heat of the prison at Macarus, at the Macarus Fortress for challenging the morals of Herod, while Jesus, the alleged Messiah, did nothing about this injustice? And John questioned. We may be tempted to ask a question ourselves. How could someone like John the Baptist have doubts? He should have known better, right? He was, a, he was a spiritual leader, a prophet of all things. He was the man who said and, and proclaimed in John 1.29 when he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And a few verses later in verse 34, he says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. That sounds like confidence, doesn't it? 
I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God, and now we find him asking, are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for another? We need to be careful about criticizing John, because it doesn't matter who you are. No matter how spiritually strong you are, no matter what your past victories are, no one is exempt from the fears and the doubts of this life. Charles Spurgeon, a man who wrestled with great depression and discouragement at times in ministry, said, I believe it is a shallow experience that makes people always confident of what they are and where they are. For there are times of terrible trouble that make even the most confident child of God Hardly know whether he is on his head or on his heels. You face doubts like that? You face times of discouragement? Maybe bordering on despair? Of depression? Well, you're not alone. As you search the scriptures, it's not just an anomaly of John the Baptist. You walk in the footsteps of many others. Of Elijah. Job, Peter, and of King David himself. Keep your place there in Matthew 11 and flip over to Psalm 22, if you would, for a moment. As we say this, we need to remember that Doubt and discouragement are not virtues. As we look at this passage and as we, as we understand and maybe even walk in the experience of John the Baptist, Jesus, or God's word, is not holding up this uh, life of in uncertainty or even uh, discouragement, depression, and despondency as an ideal of any kind. We need to understand that these experiences will occur in our lives as Christians. And some of us face them more than others. But God doesn't tell us to stay there. A persistent lack of faith is sin and can keep us from walking in obedience to and intimacy with God. But yet, as believers, we still find these times of doubt. And the psalmist David is among those who have experienced these times. I want you to just listen carefully to these verses. And remember who's writing them. This is David. God called him a man after my own heart. This is David who has written psalms of exaltation and penned beautiful words of worship to Almighty God. And yet, he wrote these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Someone borrowed them many years later upon the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The man who has known intimacy with God, the, the, kind of the poster child of 
of being in love and close with God in the Bible. It says, God, you have forsaken me. I cry all day long. I'm up at night crying out, and still there is nothing. He goes on to say, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Now we're going to return to Psalm 22 in a few moments. But David experienced this utter despair, this loneliness, this feeling like he was completely, uh, like, like the only man standing, all of his enemies. He, he says that, all everybody's against me. It feels like that sometimes, right? We tend to speak in, in, in just like big sweeping terms. Everybody hates me. God has completely forgotten me. John was experiencing something of this abandonment, of this discouragement, of this despondency while he was in prison. I don't want to read too much into it, but it was clear that he was questioning the very person of Jesus Christ and whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. You and I, my brothers and sisters, are not immune from the doubts and the discouragements of life. No matter how long we've walked with God, no matter what we've seen in the past, no matter how much scripture we have memorized, we are prone, just like John or anybody else, to times of doubt. Doubt that could lead to despair or depression or discouragement. I want us to think for a few moments about how Jesus responded. And how we can use Jesus' response to grab a hold of and have our own hearts be strengthened in those moments when we have questions but no answers. So the second thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is gentle and gracious with doubters, the discouraged and depressed. Jesus is gentle and gracious with doubters, with the discouraged and with the depressed. Letter A there, the first thing I want us to see is that kind of what Jesus does not do is he doesn't condemn him. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't chide him. As we read these voices, uh, these verses, I'm sorry, Jesus does not come after him. How could you? You're John. Be a man. Deal with your imprisonment. 
You're not the first one to go to jail. God spoke to you. He told you who I was. What's the deal, man? He just doesn't do that at all. I think it's so important that we remember that as we walk alongside others who are having doubts, who are having questions and uncertainties. Don't jump down their throat. Don't make them feel even worse than they are already feeling because we're belittling them now for their struggles. I love what Jude, verse 22 says. He simply says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Now certainly Jesus, when we read the Gospels, we know that there are times when he is, he is hard on people who don't have a lack, or have a lack of faith, who are unwilling to trust God. And sometimes then when, when this doubt, when it goes unchecked and it, it keeps going, it, it can result in that unwillingness to believe God, to trust God. And, and those are times when Jesus spoke up, and then those are points where we need to walk alongside brothers or sisters in love and say, hey, listen, you're, you're not trusting him anymore. And God, I think we can trust God's spirit for the wisdom to when that point comes, where we've got to say, okay, this has gone too far. But that, this is not one of those times. Jesus recognizes that he's got a, he's got a, 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 a struggling brother who needs love, who needs compassion, who needs gentleness, not to be berated. Jesus does not condemn. It's so important. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubts, you're struggling with questions, I want you to hear that Jesus does not condemn. But notice what he does. Letter B, Jesus pointed him to the truth. Jesus pointed him to the truth. This is absolutely essential. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered to them. So these are the disciples who are there on behalf of John the Baptist. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news Preach to them. <laughs> Jesus was combating John's doubt with truth. This is what's really going on, John. When we are doubting, when we are questioning, there's a very good chance that we have believed some lies. Or at the very least, the, our view of truth has begun to be obscured. That's exactly what happened to John. And Jesus said, I want you to go back and tell him what's happening. Miracles are happening. God is at work. Can anybody do this? The dead are being raised, John. That doesn't just come from anywhere. No, you're not looking for another. You're not waiting for a different Messiah. He is here. But there was even more going on in Jesus' words because what Jesus did was he distilled several messianic prophecies. And if you want to write them down, they're out of uh, Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Isaiah 42, verse 6. Um, actually, 42, verses 6, 7, and 18. 
And then also Isaiah 61.1. The prophet Isaiah had used some of these exact same words in, in declaring what the Messiah would do when he came. And Jesus was not only reminding John's disciples of what had happened, the truth, but he was also tying in the messianic prophecies with his ministry. And he said, no, John, listen, I'm fulfilling prophecy right before your very eyes. Here's what's reality. Here's where you're doubting. Here's where you're struggling. And he was gentle and gracious, but he always took him back to truth. And that's what God does with you and me. And that's what we need to do with one another. God will always, always, always take us back to truth. When we become doubtful, when we become fearful, when we become discouraged, frequently we've either believed lies or the truth has become obscured. And we need to come back to the promises of God. What is it this morning that you need to come back to, to be reminded of? We sang that song and declared, I am a child of God. Probably that was not new information to any Christian here this morning. As you were hearing that song sung, you're like, oh, sweet, I'm a child of God. I never knew that. Maybe it, maybe it was the first time, truth. But what do we do when we sing that? We're reminding ourselves, we're going back to truth. We're, we're, we're like laying hold of things that we had once been assured of, or maybe we had heard before, and we're coming back. If you notice, back in Psalm 22, and you can turn back there if you want, but that's exactly what David does. He keeps coming back to truth. If you read the whole psalm, it's this cycle of like, I feel alone, I feel cast off, but yet, but yet, but yet. He's like, this is how I feel, and this is what I'm going through, and this is what I'm experiencing, but yet. And he keeps coming back to truth. It's like he's clawing at it, grabbing a hold. It's, it's slipping through his hands, and he grabs it again and lays hold of it. At the end of verse 2, he, he, he says, oh my God, I cried to you by day and by night. Verse 3 says, yet you, yet you. I'm a worm and not a man in verse 6. But verse 9, yet you are who, ye who took me from my mother's womb. When we're assailed by these doubts and fears, and feel overwhelmed, we must come back to truth, to believe God's word. Recall to mind what he has done. Come back to the realities of who he is in his mighty works. Cling to truth in the midst of doubt. That's what Jesus did. He, put, he took John back to truth. Thirdly, let us see. Jesus reminds John that God is at work even when we don't see it. Jesus reminds him that God is at work even when we don't see it. John was in prison, okay? There was, like, it's not like prison today. I mean, not that I know from experience, but I've heard. Uh, you got opportunities to watch TV, and, and uh, there's, you know, opportunities to watch the news and catch up on what's going on. And John was not, not getting, like, a, a, a live video feed of Jesus' ministry. There was this physical separation. There was this isolation. And, and John had to be reminded that God was still doing things even though John could not see it. 
And you know, the same thing is true in our lives. God is still working behind the scenes. God is doing things on people's hearts. And we despair and we think, oh, they want nothing to do with God. They're not listening. They're not following. And, and God's like, listen. Listen, there's stuff going on below the surface that, that you, don't, you don't see. We've used this illustration before, but if you, you know, if you have a garden and you like to plant stuff in the spring and you, you put it in the ground and you water it, uh, you don't come out the next day and, and just be filled with despondency and discouragement that nothing's growing. What's happening over those first couple of weeks? There's stuff below the ground taking place that will one day bear fruit. And you can't see it, but it's happening. And you can't control it, but it's happening. And Jesus said, John, there's stuff happening. Even though you can't see, God's plan is being fulfilled in this world. It's just like Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Remember after Mount Carmel and everything was so awesome and he had that battle and, and, and he was victorious and he was on the high and then, and then, uh, then Jezebel threatened to take his life and he ran in fear and was hiding and just absolutely, just in John's position, just thought God had forgotten him. He was depressed. He was fearful. He was hiding. And, and God comes and reminds him of truth. It reminds him that there are thousands of prophets that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That God was still at work. God was raising up a successor for him. Elijah, there's things going on even though you can't see it. In moments of our doubt and questioning, we need to be reminded that God's at work even when we don't see it. Number four, letter, letter D, fourthly. Jesus sees us for who we are in Christ. And not for our shortcomings. Now, this is pretty cool. Jesus sees us for who we are in Christ and not for our shortcomings. After, the, after John's disciples were sent back, Jesus turns to the multitude and he, he begins talking to them. And he says in verse 9, speaking of John, he says, What then did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And then verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. <laughs> you notice that Jesus doesn't, like once a disciple, his, John's disciples are gone, Jesus doesn't like talk behind his back. Jesus doesn't criticize him. Jesus doesn't rag on him. <clears throat> But he tells them about his prophetic status. It reminds them of who he is, his calling. And then he, he goes on to tell the crowds, listen, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. This guy who was just doubting. This guy who was just being fearful. This guy who was just questioning Jesus' very Messiah-ishness. And, and once his posse is gone and Jesus could have said, that was ugly, he didn't. He says, you know, that guy, there's none greater. Our sin, our doubt, our fears, they don't define us. Our failures, the time in which we've blown it, 
That's not who we are. Jesus sees us for who we are in him. If you're a Christian, Jesus sees you as, as his son, his daughter, as one who has been bought by his own blood and who is precious in his sight. Just as John's struggles did not define him, so too Jesus sees us for who we are in Christ, not for our struggles, our shortcomings, or even our sin. I love how this passage finishes. Jesus has some other things to share and talks about some of the doubt and the disbelief of those to whom the gospel is being taken. And then he closes with sort of a prayer at the end of John chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. And it says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then I, I'm not sure if he's still praying or if he's turned back into uh, a sermon mode, but he says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Final thing I want you to make note of, letter E, is that Jesus offers relief to the weary. Jesus offers relief to the weary, to the doubters, to the questioners, to the discouraged. Jesus offers relief. He invites everyone. He opens his arm and he says, come unto me, all. He's not picking and choosing who gets to hear this message. He says, all of you can come. That's, that still holds true. Everyone who is here this morning, who is in need of rest, Jesus extends the same call. Come to me, all who are weary. And he calls us to trade our yoke for his. I've always pictured the yoke like the oxen would have, where two would be yoked side by side and, and, and to give a little more oxen power to the, the, the plowing of the fields. But that's not the yoke that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the kind of yoke, and I remember my wife and I seeing this in China. If you've traveled to other developing countries, maybe you've seen this, where uh, uh, there's a there'll be a, it's a yoke, and then, then you can carry a couple of heavy buckets or heavy items, and it's, and it's heavy, but it's still better than carrying them with your hands. And so you carry this yoke, and you have two hopefully equally weighted things on either side, and, and it's slightly easier to carry along. And Jesus said, even though that that's, that's easier, he said, it's still a burden. You're still carrying and weighed down a burden, by a burden. And Jesus says, my yoke is not like that. My yoke will not weigh you down. It will not leave you despondent. And so he says, take this upon you. I'm, I'm here to give you rest. He says, come and learn from me. Jesus is, is telling us not to just observe him, not to just watch him, not to stand back and study him. I heard a great illustration from a professor. He was talking about his two college-age 
kids and they, they lived out in Washington State and he found out his daughter was going to have the opportunity to study with a, uh, a renowned biologist and be able to study bald eagles with this biologist. And, uh, and, and so uh, she got back from the trip and he wanted to know about it. And he said, well, where were you? Well, she said, we were at the university. Oh, that's an interesting place to study eagles. And well, well where at the university were you? Well, we were in the, in the classroom, in the research lab. Oh, Would you, I mean, I, was the eagle in a cage? No, it was, it was in a pan, it was dead. And, and I, I got to study alongside this biologist as we observed and dissected the, the remains of this, this eagle that had, had died in the wild. And he had another son about the same time who was going to be able to go study with someone. It was a lesser renowned individual. I think somebody who worked for the Department of Natural Resources. But he found out as his son recounted his observation of the bald eagle that they got out in the wild and they were able to get close to a nest. And they were able to watch this eagle in action and, and observe it, feeding its young and, and all the, just the beauty of how God had created this eagle and, 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 uh, and, and just her care of her young and seeing uh, her power and strength. And, and, and he thought, you know, so often we come to Jesus like that, where we want to see him and we choose to see him in the pan. We choose to dissect and observe. I mean, we're... we're we got that Western mindset that is trying to peel back and figure out exactly all the nuances of what's going on here in the text. And, and Jesus said, that's, that's not how we're supposed to observe him. He says, come, come and, and, and learn from me. See me in action. Follow me. Walk with me. That was a disciple, one who, who was walking with Jesus. Not someone who observed from a distance. Not someone who, who just simply read about him and studied about him. But he lived with him. And that's what Jesus, Jesus calls us into that relationship. And he says, I will give you rest if you come to learn from me. Walk with me. I will give you rest for your souls. Rest at the very deepest level. It's, it's not the rest of a, a great sleep. It's deeper than that even. Jesus calls us to him, the only one in whom we can find this rest. This morning, I'm not sure if you've come here with doubts and questions, and, and maybe it's gone further than that into discouragement and despondency I want you to know that you're not alone. Some of the greatest men and women in all of Scripture have walked through these times of doubt. And Jesus' words to you this morning are the same words that he offered to John the Baptist. What have you seen? What have you heard? What does the truth of God's word say to you? Come back again and again, just like David, and lay hold of the truths of God's word. What do you need to hear this morning? That you're a child of God? That he's never going to let you go? That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? That he's the great physician? Well, what, what truths do you need to be reminded of today? This morning, if you've come here and, and you don't have that relationship with God, 
You've never been one who has come alongside to learn from Jesus. He's still calling you with the same call. Come unto me, weary the heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Kind of rest that can only be found in Jesus. David wrote elsewhere in the Psalms, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And it's in that refuge that we can find rest in our souls. Even when doubts and questions assail. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can cling to the truth of your word, to who you are. That we can find rest for our souls. Father, I pray that you would teach us to be patient with those who doubt. With compassion. That we would give ourselves some slack when we're struggling with doubts. And that we would over and over and over again Fight for truth. Keep clawing for it. Clinging to it. So that even in the midst of uncertain times, even in the midst of deep, dark valleys, we can be assured that you're for us. We can be assured of who you are. And help, help us in the midst of those fears to recall your word. Help us to walk alongside of others in the midst of those doubts and be gracious and gentle with them and keep pointing them to truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.